We begin our series on the book of Nehemiah tonight. Nehemiah, of course, comes after the things with Ezra. And if you look at the graphic we have up on the screen for you, you'll get a little idea of where Nehemiah comes in here at the all of the Old Testament. You can't see my little green light on uh, on the internet, but you can see the graphic pretty well, and it is uh, very self-explanatory. Ezra comes in for chapters 1 through 6. That is the first return to Jerusalem, and that comes in from, from 536 to about 516 B.C. The book of Esther comes in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. And that will be about 483 to 473 B.C. This, if you look at the graphic, you will see that it comes under the reign of Xerxes. Xerxes is the Assyrian, I'm sorry, the uh, Persian king that Esther was queen for. We then go over to the second return to Jerusalem. That is about 458. That is Ezra 7 through 10. This is where Ezra begins to restore some of the things with God's law. We have the books of Haggai and Zechariah, and they occur back over here in the beginning, around uh, beginning of Ezra, to get the temple started again. They were they came on in, and we had just finished Zechariah and looked at that. So Nehemiah comes in after the second return to Jerusalem under Ezra. The temple is finished under. Ezra's second return, they began to beautify the temple, which is a tough thing to do when you have no wall in those days, but they did. They beautified the temple. And we have about 14 years between that second return of Jerusalem until the book of Nehemiah. And so that's where we're going to be picking up with this. The king that is in place during the reign of Nehemiah is Artaxerxes, who is the son of Xerxes. And he is going to be the king. He was actually the king for quite a while. Xerxes, it looks like, was uh, actually king for about 20 years. There are some discrepancies in history that make it so we're not exactly sure when his reign stopped and when our attack Xerxes began. But most, I believe it's uh, 465, most places have it, but there is a case you can make that Artaxerxes began his reign at 475 B.C., 10 years earlier. But either way, he reigned for about 41, 42 years, I think it was, in the timeline. The book of Malachi comes up after Nehemiah, in case you wanted to know where that one came. So that's our little graphic there we have for you, just to give you some, a good picture of what's going on. So let's go over here to Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, Nehemiah is written, he is he takes on the call of building a wall and eventually, we're not going to get to it tonight, but we do want to take on the question that we had thrown out to you in this series. If God can protect the people of Israel without a wall, why waste so much time and resources and put the call on a particular person to build one? Our chapters here tonight are not really going to help us to uncover an answer for that, but let's go over verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, 
that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. We'll see where this comes into play in just a little bit, but this happens in the month of Kislev, the Jewish ninth month. It's important to keep keep note, just keep that in mind. This is in the Jewish ninth month. This is when he hears the report. Now it seems that most well, most people that have uh, written about this book say that Hananiah was his actual brother, not just a brethren. He was his actual brother. I'm sure that he is not the first one to bring back such a report. And why he has this kind of a response to it, I can't really exactly say. This is not a new condition of Jerusalem. The walls have been broken down for a long time. Maybe it's because it's his actual brother and he puts a little more stock into what he reports, to what he saw. Maybe he knows him well enough that he says, well, he wouldn't be exaggerating the case. I can't exactly tell you why this has so much of an effect on him, but this one did. And it really got him down. Now that says here in the scriptures in verse uh, 3, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. These are not survivors of those who went to Jerusalem. Sometimes people read that and they think it's the survivors of those who went to Jerusalem. That is not what he's saying. If, he, if these are survivors for those who went to Jerusalem, then we are talking about a much different situation going on in Jerusalem than what we have seen so far in the book of Ezra. These are the survivors who are survived the captivity of Babylon and had made it back to the province of Judea. So that's the survivors that he's talking about. The distress is their current state and the reproach is coming from the people that are around them. Now the burned gates, this is not likely a new scenario. These are probably the same gates that were burned under Babylon when they came through. Uh, we have no account that the gates had been rebuilt to have been burned again. So it seems like everything is just in the same place. And you can probably walk through the gates, but there's no way that you could stop people from coming through the gates that you don't want to have come through. Now we know that some repair had gone on with Ezra, but that repair had been stopped and there was no mention of the repair on the wall restarting. The repair on the house of the Lord had restarted, but we don't know that the house or that the wall itself was restarted. So since it wasn't mentioned that it was, we can assume, I think fairly safely, that the building of the wall had not recommenced and the little bit of wall that they did finish was not uh, adequate to protect them or to do much. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So something seems to have struck Nehemiah, despite all the things he may have heard up until now. This one seems to have got him enough that it really caught him off guard or grabbed his heart or whatever it might be. But he is caught up with this one. This is a burden for him. He is praying. He is fasting on this. He is mourning. He is weeping. These are not new conditions, but for some reason they do take him in this particular way. Verse 5, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now his words here in verse 
5 are extremely similar to Daniel's. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 4, let's take a look at how he um, pulls this up. Actually, I, I put verse 3 in mind too. Uh, it's not going to come up on your screen, but I'll just read it for you. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. Now, it's almost a word for word. More than likely... Daniel was not copying Nehemiah because Daniel was before Nehemiah. And by this point, I would imagine Nehemiah is very acquainted with the writings of Daniel. So, Nehemiah is probably copying the words of Daniel. Now, he does change the word uh, Jehovah. He substitutes, he puts in the word Jehovah instead of Daniel's Lord or Adonai. Daniel uses the word Adonai. He uses the word Jehovah. When you have the translation that says Lord. And he also introduces a favorite phrase of Nehemiah's. And this is a slight change from what Daniel had prayed. He uses the phrase, God of heaven. Nehemiah likes this phrase, and he uses it often. But outside of that, the prayer is pretty much the same as Daniel's. He goes on, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Now this does not follow Daniel's example in prayer, as it seems that Nehemiah keeps coming to God with the same confession. I don't understand. We'll talk a little bit more about this. Let's go on the rest of his prayer. But I don't understand Nehemiah's prayer here. It's very confusing for me. I understood it with Daniel. Daniel makes this prayer. It makes a lot more sense. It does not make a whole lot of sense for me to see Nehemiah making this prayer. Verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. I'm sorry, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments... And do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, why be reminding God to do what he has already done? This is where I just, I don't understand what Nehemiah is doing here. God said that if you would come back to me, I'll bring you back to the place. They came back to him and God brought them back to the place. So why is Nehemiah praying this? It would seem to me it would have been a better prayer to say, since you have gathered your people in Jerusalem, make it a place worthy of your name. That to me would have been a good prayer. I don't understand this prayer at all. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And there is nothing that I can see from this prayer that is worth us imitating. He goes on in verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. Now please hear the prayer of your servant. It seems he he is not strong on confidence here. 
why, why is he so puzzled or even wondering that the Lord would hear his prayer? So, as I said, I don't understand this prayer. He's going over past things as if, they've, as if they haven't already been resolved, as if God has not already brought them back. And this last part right here, listen to this. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who f- desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. This man would be the king. This would be Artaxerxes. And it would sound like from this prayer that he is going in to to talk with the man about going back and doing the job. It seemed very much like that. But that's what's going on. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But what God has already done should be a springboard for us and for him for assurance that God will help him. This is supposed to be a springboard of assurance for us. What God has done in the past, what God has said He would do in the past, and has done it, is supposed to be for us a springboard that He would do it again. He constantly was was talking to Israel. Didn't you see what I did? Didn't you understand what I had done? What about me bringing you through this, or feeding you, or watering, giving you water, things of, of that nature? If I came through for you before, why would I not come through for you again? Why is Nehemiah going over these past things as if they haven't been done. Now, it sounds like here in this prayer, he has an expectation to go before the king. And this is uh, Artaxerxes Longamanus, who was directly after Esther's king. Now, Artaxerxes I was the fifth king of the Archimedes Empire. And he was from, once, most have it at 465. I did find a fairly substantial case showing that it could well be 475. And he went till December of 424. He was the third son of Xerxes. The name he has, Longimanus, is the Latin version. There's also a Greek version. It means long-handed. Uh, allegedly, it's because his right hand was longer than his left. But some may say it was metaphorical in that he had a long reach and influence. I can't see anything in history that says he had any longer reach than anybody else had than Xerxes or the ones who came before him. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the, we know that's what he had the nickname for. Can't tell you exactly why he had that nickname. Now, Nehemiah, just like other Jewish uh, exiles, has attained a very high position in the realm. He is the cupbearer, and it's a good position. Of course, if anyone's going to die from poison, that means he would be the first one to go. But in the meantime, you live a pretty good life. You're living uh, life in the palace and so forth. But as we get to the end of chapter 1, he's making his prayer, and it sounds like he's going before the king. Then we come to verse 1. And this is very puzzling. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Now you can really quickly read over this and, and not catch what's, what's going on. He hears the report in the ninth month. And he comes before King Artaxerxes in the twelfth, I'm sorry, the first month. 
that is almost four months after. Now, depending on when it was in the ninth month and when it is in the first month, it could be three months. It is no shorter than three months, and it might be as much as four months difference from the time he got the report, began his fasting and prayer, began his praying to God, and then comes before the king. Three to four months. Now, the king here, Artaxerxes, would have been a king who would have been bouncing around between two capitals. There was the capital of Susa, which is where Nehemiah is. There's also the capital of Babylon. And it may well be that he was at the capital of Babylon when the report came to him at Susa, so that he was not near the king and did not have an opportunity for audience with him until three or four months later when he came back. It may be that he had a cupbearer over in Babylon and he was the cupbearer over in Susa. And there was just no sense in bringing everybody along in the trip. They had duties probably to do while they were in uh, Babylon. He had duties to do in Susa. That's uh, one explanation. I can't see really much. much I, I can't see the king not calling on him during that time. Or uh, it just does, it, That's not a position that you just kind of sit idly by. When a king needs something, you only have so many people that you trust to taste your food for you. And he was one of them. So he would have been brought on in. We do notice that he says, Now I had not, never been sad in his presence before. So if he had seen him any time before, then he wasn't sad. Which seems odd because he has been mourning on this for three or four months now. And to not have been sad in his presence seems strange. I would probably say he had been in the capital of Babylon and had just now come over to Susa and now he was had the opportunity to minister to him. This may have been the first time. Maybe it was the second or third. Maybe he tried to put on a good face. But it sounded like he was fully expecting to go into the presence of the king. And he made a prayer that says, that when I go into the presence of the king, give me favor. Kind of like what Esther did when she went before the king. Let's go on with verse 2. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? Well, he better not be sick. In this position, you can't be sick and come before and be tasting the, the food of the king and pass something on to him. So I think you would be excused from service if you were sick and somebody else would have to come in and, and stand in the place. So why is your face sad since you are not sick? I wonder if that was really a question. <laughs> you aren't sick, are you? <laughs> well, he said, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. It would seem like he wanted to bring this up to the king, but he didn't want the king to notice anything different about him. And since the king did notice the sorrow on his, his face, he became afraid because there's all kinds of reasons that the king can kill you. There's, they don't really have to have a valid reason. They just say off with their head or kill him or whatever it might be. And you're dead. Just with, this, with the book of Esther, you know, she could make that appearance. And if he didn't extend the, the uh, scepter to her, then she is dead. And so he must be thinking the same thing. So I became dreadfully afraid, he said. Verse 3. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Common phrase that they did with kings. I, I mean you no harm. I want you to continue to live on. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, What do you request? 
So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king is very direct, or else we're just having a very shortened version of the conversation. He just says, what do you want to do? What is your request about this? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Have you ever done this? You probably have. Uh, right before you're going to say something, you make a prayer to God. <laughs> you're, you're getting ready to say something to your boss. You're getting ready to say something to somebody that you, you need favor from. And right before you say, you kind of make a silent prayer inside. <laughs> this is what he's doing right here. <laughs> so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. So he's praying to the God of heaven and he's saying to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set a time. Now we're not told what the time frame was, but there was apparently a time frame. You can go. You can have this much time and then I expect you to return and come back into service here. So whatever the time frame was, Nehemiah felt like he could get the job done and the king felt like he could do without his service for that time and it would make him happy. Now, one of the things you'll notice about this is Nehemiah has been sowing into this king for a long time. When you want to ask favors of somebody, always make sure that you have been sowing into that field. A lot of times people are wanting to draw from people that they've never sown into. And sometimes that will rub you the wrong way. You ever have people in your life and all they ever do is ask you for things? They never sow into your, to your life. They never try and help you out when they have an opportunity to help out. If you call on them, hey, can you come over and help me with this? Well, I'm busy. Well, no, I can't. But they have an opportunity. They give you a call. Hey, can you come over here and do this? What do you mean you can't? <laughs> they... They're always drawing off the well, but not very often putting into it. He has been sowing into this part. He's been doing, probably going over and above. He's been happy in the king's presence. He has made a positive effect on this. Always make sure that when you're going to be, whatever relationships you have, don't even go into and think, well, I'm eventually going to need a favor from this person, so I better treat them nice. Because then all you're doing is sowing to get. And the Word of God tells us not to do that. Just go into every relationship you can with the idea of, I am going to put into this relationship whether I receive anything from it or not. I'm just going to sow into them. I don't know down the road I might need something from them, but I'm just going to sow into them. I'm just going to help them. And you do all the things that you can for it. But when you begin to realize that a relationship is one way, you want to be careful continuing on. Because you're not necessarily helping them. We talked about that some in the Sunday morning service not too long ago. But I, I've noticed it with, with people. If it's always a one-way street, then there's, there's only so much help you can really do for, for people like that. They have to get out of that mode of just being one-way and find out there's a beauty of being two-way. I can help out other people as well as receive help for myself. But some people, they're always in a receive mode. I need to receive. Well, I need more than you do. Just like the uh, ten virgins. The five needed. So you guys need to come over and help us out with this. Uh, no, not always. But anyway, he's he's been doing some things. We don't know what they were. We aren't privy to all that that had gone on. But for some reason, the king is very willing to let him go. And he is also willing to send money. 
So verse 5, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, and I may rebuild it. Now really, he's, he's not trying to rebuild the whole city. He's trying to rebuild the wall. But in rebuilding the wall, there'll be parts of the city that would be rebuilt as well. Now the queen that is sitting with the king here is a queen by the name of Damasphia, who was who bore his legal heir and successor, who would be the one to come up to him. That's Xerxes. That would be Xerxes II. The king, I'm told, had 17 other sons by his concubines. But this is the. But she had the one who was going to be the, the next heir. And I wrote down, there's 12 kings of the Persian Empire. It started, of course, off with Cyrus the Great, Cambyses II, and a real short run by... Bardia, and we went over some of those when we went over the uh, history of Ezra. Darius the Great, of course, we're well known with him. Xerxes, which was Esther's king. And this one here, Artax Xerxes. These are the main ones that will come upon us here. But we're going to see down, down after this uh, that others will, will come up. Uh, a lot of Darius's and a lot of Artax Xerxes. There's quite a bit of history if you ever want to look these kings up. Uh, there's a lot of poisoning that went on. Uh, brothers rose up against brother. One brother poisoned the other brother so that he could become king. And uh, it just was a, it's quite a mess. Until finally they got down to Darius III. He is the one who was defeated by Alexander. I think we went over some of that history in, uh, not too long ago. And then Artaxerxes V, he's the one who took over for Darius. And he didn't last very long and he was executed by Alexander. Verse 7, Furthermore, I said to the king, so he's, I, I got that request pretty easily. Let's go on and ask for some more. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. So I need basically a visa to get on through. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me tinder to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall. And for the houses that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So he did plan on building some houses. And they're one of which he would be occupying. And we need the timber for the gates and some probably some parts of the wall as well. So this is the third king we see who agreed to build something in Jerusalem for the Jews and then to finance it. So he asked for the, for the money. And he got it. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Well, just when things are rolling in a positive direction, here comes the offended crowd. And this is what he's running into. So he had the bad report that came in. For some reason, this particular report affected him very greatly. He mourned for three, four months. It seems that he finally got an audience with the king to be able to perform his, his duty and was able to make this request. He prayed beforehand going in that he would have favor when he would make this request. He made the request. He had the favor. He went further. He said, we need uh, supplies. Can you write letters so that we can get the supplies? And that was granted to him as well. And so when he's coming on in, everything seems to be going pretty well. He get, he has uh, 
as far as we can tell, easy passage to get on through. He had the letter from the king. He was one of the high ups in the king's uh, staff, so no one's going to be messing with him. And then when Sanballat, this name will come up quite a bit here in this, this book, and Tobiah, when they heard about it, they were disturbed. They didn't like that somebody had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. That's all that they're upset about. We don't want Israel to be having a good, good thing going on. Sometimes people get upset because a particular group is going to be helped. I don't want that group helped. I don't want that group moved along. Don't be doing this. And they'll, they'll come on out of, uh, of hiding. So for Nehemiah, he can be saying, well, we're just moving along here. Everything's going along just as we planned it. And here we go. And then all of a sudden, here comes some opposition. How will Nehemiah handle this? Now, as we're talking about on Sunday, God will give you a love for the call that's on your life. A love ignited a call on Nehemiah's life. And somehow that report that he got gave him a tug on that love he had for God, for his people, and amazingly for a city he never knew. He never knew Jerusalem in its, in its grand day. He didn't know all the things that had gone on there before the place was burned. He didn't know all the things that happened in the original temple. But he knew it was important to God. And because it was important to God, it became important to him. But he had a love for God. He had a love for God's people. And he had a love for a city that he never knew. Now, I pulled him away from a comfortable place and lifestyle. He had a pretty comfortable place and lifestyle. He had to be thinking about where's my next meal coming from. He didn't have to be worried about the roof over his head or paying the electric bill. Nothing like that at all. He didn't have to worry about clothing and the supplies he needed. He was there in the palace. So he had a very comfortable place to live, very comfortable lifestyle. And this love for the things of God, for the people of God, and for the city that he never knew, pulled him from a comfortable place and lifestyle right into a battle zone. And I don't think he knew how much of a battle zone it was going to be. He may have just thought, well, we're going out there and we'll fix it up and then we'll be right back. He, didn't, he may not have had, it, had any idea how much opposition that he would encounter when he took this thing on. But he's about to get educated. Love will get you into the battle. But uh, quoting something from, I believe it was, um, I think it's Brother Keith Moore who says this, knowledge and its proper use that will win battles. Oh, no, it's Fred Price. That's Fred Price's thing. That's why it's in my head so much. Knowledge and its proper use wins battles. It's something he'll, he'll tell us all the time. Love will get you into the battle. You may love something very, very much and it may pull you into the battle, but love will not win you the battle. Knowledge and its proper use, that's what will win the battle. Love got Nehemiah into this, but he's going to learn some things about going into the battle and that's what's going to help him. You need that love. You need that motivation to come in. But love is a, is a great thing in the Christian life. But there are other things in the Christian life that you need beside love. You need faith. You need knowledge. You need wisdom. You need understanding. 
You need peace. You need joy. All these things you need. And he needed it too. So just because you set out to fulfill your call doesn't mean that you will do everything right. And just because Nehemiah set out to do the call that God had apparently put on his life doesn't mean that he would do everything right. Nehemiah needs to grow in confidence. He needs to grow in faith. He needs to grow in purpose and in taking the fight to the enemy. When we look at that first prayer of his, we can learn a lot of things from Nehemiah. One of which is he's not quite ready for the battle. He's going to get ready, but he's not quite ready for the battle. You'll see that he will imitate words spoken by other people. We can imitate the word that people speak and we can imitate the things that they do. But we're not supposed to imitate the mistakes that they fall into. Now there are some people in the Word of God who started out making mistakes. Great people, but they started out making mistakes. I'm just going to give you a couple of them here. Abraham. When he started out, he made a mistake. He took the whole family with him. Then when he gets up, uh, part of the way through the journey, stops, his father passes away. And he decides, let's go on and finish this call that God had put on his life. And he takes a lot with him. He still didn't get away from his family. And then he gets on down to the land of Israel, the promised land. And he finds out there's famine there. Well, let's go on down to Egypt. And in Egypt, he lies about his wife. He made a lot of mistakes. You don't want to imitate the mistakes. He had a word from God, but he didn't follow the word from God the way that he should have. Joshua didn't make nearly as many mistakes, but he still made some. And whenever he made them, he said, that's on me. I did that. I made that covenant there. We shouldn't have done that. I should have asked my God about it, but I made that. That was on me, but we still got to honor it. David made mistakes. He made some mistakes in the beginning, but he learned from them and he overcame Solomon made a lot of mistakes. Didn't make them all in the beginning. Beginning he did pretty good. But then he started making mistakes. And he didn't recover from them quite as well. And you can think of some other people in the Word of God who had a great call in their life. Had a great love for the things that they wanted to do. But they made mistakes. We don't know much about the first years of Paul's ministry. He was, he was away. Nothing was written about him. We don't know what mistakes he made. I don't know what he learned. But I know when he came back, he was doing pretty good. We don't see Paul make too many mistakes. Great people can make great mistakes. But the Word of God helps us to recognize them so that we don't fall into those same mistakes. And that's the thing that we need to to follow after. Just because a great person does something doesn't mean it was a great thing. And we have to learn that. Nehemiah, in his opening prayer, does not make a very good prayer. It is not a prayer that you should emulate. Well, it worked. The one thing you will never know about people in the body of Christ or in the Word of God is how much mercy and grace did God mix in in order to get them to the place of victory. See, I don't know that. There may have been a lot of mercy and grace that was mixed in to get Nehemiah to the place of victory here in the beginning. Because he is praying a prayer 
talking about things as if they were not so and God did not bring them through, as if God still had to forgive His people. God had already forgiven His people. God had already moved the people over to the land. What you're looking for now is to glorify, make that city worthy of the title of God is, uh, of being God's city. That's the kind of prayer that you make. But he decided to imitate more the prayer that Daniel prayed. But Daniel prayed that prayer one time and got an answer. Nehemiah, we don't know how many times he made this prayer between the time that he heard the report in the morning and the time that he showed up in front of the king. But he had three or four months. This is all we're told that occurred in that three or four months. Nehemiah will become a great man in Scripture. But what I want you to see is he did not start out a great man. He started out as a man who copied people. He copied great people. He did what they did. He didn't understand all the things that were involved in it. He will eventually. But he does not start off that way. Sometimes we start off copying people. And God has to mix in some mercy and some grace in order to get us there. But the Word of God helps us to recognize the mistakes that people in the Word did or that people that are around us do so that we don't fall into them. It's important that we get to know the Word of God because it is the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God that helps us recognize the mistakes that people make. Many times people can just read this prayer that Nehemiah prays. What a fantastic prayer. I'm going to pray just like that. And they begin to pray. Father God, I pray that you forgive us. And All you're doing is imitating the prayer that somebody else prayed. The one who originally prayed this prayer was Daniel. And Daniel prayed it out of revelation. Revelation knowledge that he had just gotten from the Word of God that the Spirit of God quickened him to understand. And he made this prayer and God came and answered that prayer. They had been exiled for 70 years, but he said, now I'm going to start working to bring you guys back. Nehemiah has already seen that prayer answered and the people having been brought back and gone back at this point in two different waves. He has seen the temple be rebuilt. But he still prays this prayer. Now I may not know how much mercy and grace was mixed in to make a person's victory happen, but I can know to follow their faith steps not their flesh tendencies. Follow a person's faith steps. Don't follow their flesh tendencies. When you look at the life of Abraham, don't follow his flesh tendencies. Follow his faith steps. When you look at the life of Joshua, when you look at the life of David, when you look at the life of Saul, when you look at the life of so many other kings that are in the Bible, follow their faith steps. Don't follow their flesh tendencies. Just because a person is a person of faith doesn't mean there isn't some flesh in there. If I know the Word of God, I can weed out the flesh. I'm not to follow the flesh, but I can follow the faith. And that's what we want to to be able to do. Follow the faith that is there. Follow the faith that they have. You cannot copy another's words or actions and get to their faith can't do it. You cannot copy another person's words or actions and get to their faith. Your words and actions must come from your faith and what you have come to believe. 
Nehemiah didn't know too much of what to do here. He got a bad report. It really tugged on him. A love awoke inside of him. And that love would carry him through to do something that God called him to do. And that is to build the walls around Jerusalem. He's determined to answer this call and to leave his very Christian lifestyle to go out to a place that is not a palace, that is not protected by an army, and that he does not know maybe where his next meal is coming from. doesn't know exactly what he's going to face out there. But what he knows is, God has told me that I need to go. And he's going to go and he's going to do this. We're going to find out later on here in the book of Nehemiah that he will take on the building of the wall and despite all the opposition that comes, he will accomplish this task in 52 days. That blows away the temple. He builds the wall in 52 days. That is amazing. Nehemiah did not start out as a man of faith and power. He started out kind of weak. He started out copying other people in the things that they did. But you don't get to a place of building a wall around the city in 52 days with great opposition against you staying that way. He learned to not copy what other people were doing but to find out what God had told him to do and to generate things from his own faith and his own set of beliefs. And he accomplished some great things. And for a while, we know that Ezra was looked at as a very, very, very high up, but so too was Nehemiah. In fact, I'm even told from historians that Nehemiah for a while was even held a little higher esteem than was Ezra. At least for a little while it was. If Nehemiah never grew beyond the point that he was when he made that prayer. He may never have become that person. Sometimes when we have started something for God, we picked it up because we have a love. But all we did was copy what other people did. All we did was copy what we thought someone did in the Word. We didn't take the time to look through Scripture and to understand what they did that was of their flesh and what they did that was of the Spirit. What they did was that was taught to them in Scripture and what they did because they thought whatever I do is okay. Abraham did a lot of things. I think he just thought, well, whatever I do is going to be okay. But he found out it's not so. It's important that I do the right things. And it's important for us too that we do the right things. Have your actions be born of faith. Don't have them be born of habit. Don't have them be born of the flesh. And do not ever try and glorify your flesh and make it look spiritual. If it's flesh, it's flesh and it will stink. Nehemiah is going to get pulled out of this. We're going to look at some of the things that Nehemiah does. I really can't think of any other time he's copying anybody. But that scripture, chapter 1, his prayer, very much seems like he's copying Daniel. He's just copying somebody who was successful. But there was no need for the prayer that he prayed because all those things had been done. Make sure that when you pray for the things that you are taking on, is it something that God has already done? Is it something that God has already put in your hands? Don't be praying things to God that He has already done or He's given you the ability to use His name to accomplish.
Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for examples in your word that you teach us from. People who made mistakes and learned and grew. Even in this one where someone copied another, but they eventually grew past that and became the person of faith that you made them to be. And I thank you that each one of us can become the person of faith that you've made us to be. Regardless of where we have been in the past, you have a place in the future to take us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.